I think it is a dangerous thing to live your life. In our own lives, the urgency comes up because you are living your purpose. Why are you here? What is your life about? What is the meaning of it all? If you are not living for that, then you're not living urgently. And if you were living for somebody else's destiny, somebody else's purpose, somebody else's happiness, then I'm sorry, you're not living life. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the, should we call it the Bosecast today? I don't know. Well, welcome back to the podcast. We're bringing the best and the brightest from the world of business, marketing, entrepreneurship, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. Folks, this is a big show today. I am lucky enough to have one of my all-time top 10 podcast wish guests, the one and only Bozeman St. John. And uh, I got to tell you a little bit more about her. Uh, at the very least, voted number one. At the very least, geez, I don't know, it's the very most, very least. Number one most influential CMO by Forbes in 2021 is literally in the American Marketing Hall of Fame. She is a master marketer with an insane resume to match that boasts companies like Apple, Uber, and Netflix, to name a few. And she began her career at Spike Lee's ad agency and quickly climbing up the ranks to senior marketing positions at companies such as PepsiCo, Apple Music, and Endeavor. Most recently, serves as the chief global marketing officer at a little film company called Netflix, but there's so much more to unpack. And today we are going to unpack her life journey through the lens of her career and celebrate her new book, The Urgent Life. And she is one of the only humans on the face of the planet like me that loves a cinnamon raisin bagel egg sandwich. So we're going to get to it. Bose, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I think that might be the only time anyone has ever use my love of cinnamon raisin bagel egg sandwich with the bacon. I don't know if you have the bacon, but I have the bacon uh, as an intro. And so we can say this is the first time ever that it's happened. And and probably the last also. So I want to give a little, I want to give a little bit of background here because I've known of you and your career journey for over a decade. And that is through our mutual, your best friend and one of my favorite bosses of all time, Justino Amakwa. And it wasn't until I read your book and I matched the timeline of the events in your life to when I was working for her. And that was late 2012 to early 2014. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who reads the book, this is a major, 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 probably the most critically important part of of your life. So just want to give a little bit of context there. And when I got to that chapter in the book, and we'll get to that in a second, I had to go back and cross-reference. And the story, and correct me if I'm wrong, keep me straight here. Justina yeah. drove with you to Massachusetts to Peter's family home to, to bring him and your, and your first daughter home, correct? Yes, 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 yes. She was right there in the passenger seat as I drove, which really should have been reversed, honestly. She should have been driving. I should have been in the passenger seat. But, you know, at that time, there was just so much going on that um, I'm sure she just let me do whatever it is I wanted to do and was so- just there to support. So there's a couple things I want to call out, and I don't want to give away all the all the pieces of the book that really jump out to me because I want people to read it and experience it the way I did. Um, what has Justina taught you about life? Oh, well, Justina is a is a loyal friend. You know, I think sometimes people throw that word around all the time, like, oh, you know, your friends are supposed to be loyal. No, that's not true. You know, Justina is the kind of friend who will 
go above and beyond, not just because like her heart is big, but because she loves you that deeply. You know, she's not a fair weather friend. And so, you know, she's the person who, uh, you know, all range of things. Like, you know, she was there at my daughter's first birthday party, you know, and stayed until the end when we had to clean up and put the she was there for you. plates away. And she drove, you know, I think she actually let my cousin stay the night at her house. You know, she's that friend. She's the friend, as we've just said, who sat, you know, shotgun in the car when I was going to bury my husband. You know, she's also the friend, Thick and thin. Who, uh, you know, moved from across the country when I was working at Apple and said, I'll, I'll come work with you because it was a super tough environment. And I needed somebody to watch my back. And she was the person, the only person I trusted to do that. It's amazing. Yep. So, yes, loyalist is the way I would describe her. <laughs> I absolutely love that. So I wanted to I did want to do a quick shout out to Justina. She taught me and I told you this when I met you at VCon. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. She, she gave me tough love. She gave me tough love. And I needed that at that point in my life, Bo. It was like I needed someone to smack me around a little bit, right, and get me into shape. And she made me a better marketer. She made me yeah. a better communicator. And she taught me to have a strong point of view. And at the end of the day, if that point of view was wrong, hopefully it was right most of the time, but stick to it. And, and I really carried that through. So, Justina, shout out to you. Thank you so much for everything. So let's get into it. And I want to talk about your book. Let's get into it. An, an urgent life, the urgent life. Yes. An yes. urgent life, the urgent life, living an urgent life. Um. First and foremost, incredibly well written, because a lot of people write books, and even if he's a ghostwriter, they're not that great. This is—I could not put this down. I could not put this down. Thank you. But the moments I had to put down, I—I'm an emotional guy. I'm very open and vulnerable with my feelings. Like I—I I don't know you, but I feel like I know you so much better after after reading this book. I'm glad to hear that. And I applaud you for being open and, and sharing your vulnerability. But Bose, what, what did what did you learn about yourself? I want to talk about the process. What did you mm-hmm. learn about yourself through the through? And for how long did it take? What did you learn about yourself writing writing this book? Um, it took me. Well, you know what's so wild is that um, the concentrated time it took to write the book was about two and a half years. Um, but I started writing the book right after my husband died, actually. Um, I remember exactly where I was. We were, Leon and I, and I tell this in the book, that we had gone to Anguilla um, on the spur of a moment trip after Christmas because I, we were in New York and I just couldn't stand being there. My husband had been dead for two weeks and I needed to get out of the city because everything, our home, everything reminded me of him and I just needed to get out. Um, and we were coming to the end of our trip to Anguilla. We'd been there probably almost a month, (laughs) you know? And um, I just took out my iPad and just started writing down my thoughts. I'm not that person, to be honest with you. I never kept a journal. I I wasn't that one, you know? But Not um, even in your notes in your phone or anything? Nothing? No, no. But I did write write in the notes in my iPad that day. You know, I was sitting by the pool. And you know what's so wild, Adam? I didn't actually put this in the the book. Or maybe I did. Now I can't remember. But um, I was writing in the iPad when Lael approached me and a leaf had fallen down into the pool where she was swimming, just in front of me, you know? And she comes running out because by that point, I had been talking about sort of the signs that we're getting from her dad, you know? The rainbow. And she brings the leaf to me and the leaf was in the shape of a heart. And she was like, this is from daddy, this is from daddy. And I was like, what? You know, and the and the what's so wild is that I was sitting there writing my thoughts. Those first 
paragraphs that I wrote, which by the way, I didn't touch again for a decade. You know, I never wrote another sentence apart. I wrote it and then just put it to the side, um, made into the book in its entirety, word for word, those feelings that I had, you know, raw, unedited. Yeah. And so the process of writing, um, and I really appreciate the compliment about how it's written because I wrote it like the way I talk, the way I think, you know, the way I story tell. It's not linear. And I at first was concerned about that because I thought, oh, people are going to get lost. You know, it's like I'm talking about this time period and all of a sudden I jump back. But they also know the punchline. I mean, I don't use it like use the word punchline lightly, yeah. but they but they know the outcome of your of your life story. The, yeah. People, Most people do. So that was another thing. You kept doing the recall and it was perfect. It was, yeah. it was, wo- it was too, st- it was woven just like this. The recalls back and forth. It was brilliant. Yeah. Cause it just felt like that's the way I tell stories anyway. And I think most of us tell stories like that, where it's just like, Oh, but before I tell you that, let me tell you why that's important, you know? And that's what we do. And so it's like, you won't understand why this moment in time or like, you know, I talk about the relationship of my father and Peter and when, you know, he's in the hospital and we have the news that his cancer is terminal, he says, call your father. You don't understand why that's important. Unless I tell you, I go backwards and tell you their relationship. And so that's the process in which I wrote. And um, most of my writing was done because I talked it out and then transcribed it later, you know? So most of it was, was telling, just like I'm telling you. And so that's why I think the style of my writing and even the audiobook, for that matter, people tell me that, you know, the audiobook is like they're talking to me. And I'm like, it should feel like that because that, that's how that's how I actually wrote the book was just telling the story. And that's, and, and that's exactly how I felt it. Like even when you're when you're doing the hip hop references at the time, like I felt I was transported. You're talking yeah. about your college days. I imagine sitting on the stoop. I imagine the dorm rooms. I imagine right. the, the, the frat house like it was very visual. And you talk about a lot about your favorite writers too, and how much they, 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 they influence you and your style. So kudos on the actual book itself, the actual writing of it. It was a pleasure to read. I read a bunch of books from guests. Some of them can't get past the first page. And I'm like, all right, screw it. But for you, obviously I'm going to read this one. Um, was it hard for you to be so open and vulnerable? Cause you, you shared it all. You shared the good, the bad, the ugly, the shit, you, the deepness, those raw dog emotions. I mean, you, you went there. Yeah. You know, it's funny. At one point, um, my editor, shout out to Meg Leader. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I don't use that button often. It just felt right. Sorry. I love that. I love that. Exactly. <laughs> um, at one point, Meg had written, had, had read a, a, a couple of chapters, I don't know, at some point during the writing. And um, she was like, Poof. she was like, this is hard. She was like, you know, she was like, you don't make yourself the hero at all. You know? And the truth of the matter is that I don't feel like a hero. You know, I think that all of us are human. And look, there are some things that I did that I am not proud of, but I'm not ashamed to tell you that. You know, it's like, I feel like it's- We're human, we're flawed. Growth, yeah. Growth is a human. It's like, it was my experience. And even to that point, Adam, um, I wanted to be so honest in my writing that oftentimes to get to that place, I would have to really think about like, what what was the smell of the room? You know, what was the nurse, what color was she wearing? So descriptive. What was, what was the temperature in the room? Like, how, how did that feel? Those emotions were, would take me to the place. And that way I could be honest because I didn't want to ever 
And I'm sure, you know, this has happened to a lot of people, whether you write books or articles or a paper from college or whatever, you know, sometimes you go back and read something. You're just like, Ugh, you know, you cringe because you don't like the cringe thing. writing. I feel like I would cringe if I made a mistake in the retelling. I thought I would never be able to live with myself if later on in 10 years. I'm like, wait a minute. That uniform was not blue. It was no. orange. No, you know, you it. that forced me to have to be as honest in the descriptions as I was with my feelings, as I was with the critical. realities. They're critical to your story. So if you take the extremes of, I'm not going to give it away, lasagna to the smell of death, right? Those two yeah. fucking insane extremes and how descriptive you are. Those are essential to the story and the callbacks yeah. back and forth. Like just, just kudos, kudos to you yeah. on that. So a couple of things that, that stood out to me. Um, one, I mean, you go deep into the relationship between you and Peter and the vulnerability and how hard it was for him being a white man to relate. And, mm -hmm. and for me reading that, I was like, that was eye opening to me because that's mm -hmm. stuff I never thought about. I married a white woman, right? When we never had to deal with that shit, right? We never had to deal with that heaviness too. Yeah. And you positioned it in a way that, that it felt relatable and it felt mm -hmm. relatable. Did you, t did you talk to him about that before he passed away? Was that something he felt yeah. open and discussing knowing that, you going to continue this conversation? Yeah. I mean, to some degree, we talked about it. I think we talked about it more in real time than we did in reflection. You know, the... In the moment. At the, yeah. At the, at the end of his life, we didn't talk about, you know, the difficulties of race in our, in our marriage. You know, we talked about other difficulties. But in the moment... You know, this is what's so hard about it, Adam. You know, sir, anybody who's, who's in a long-term relationship, hell, it could be short-term, you know how hard communication is in the moment. Number one thing. You're, you're feeling your feelings and it's hard to say why it is that you're feeling a certain way. It's hard to be reflective when you're angry or upset or disappointed, you know? And we would do our best to try and voice those things. I do remember being in Ghana um, and being so frustrated with his white manness, you know, that he was so comfortable in a country that wasn't his, people that didn't look like him, and he was still walking around like he was king. You know, and that was so annoying to me. But at um, the same time, he was also enjoying himself. But yeah. but to you, it's a, diff a completely different perspective. That was eye-opening. Yeah, 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 of course. I mean, look, that's that's what I mean. Like, look, it was a lose-lose situation for him because it was like, what did, what did I want? You know, I want him to be miserable in Ghana and come back and tell people how much he hated it. Of course no. not. At the same time, I find it wholly annoying that he could not experience what I feel in America. You know, that like he couldn't feel like an outsider because he's just not. White men are not outsiders anywhere in the world. And so for him, he can walk freely down the street, whether that's in Ghana or it's in Paris or it's in New York and not have a care in the world. Whereas like the only place I am comfortable is in Ghana. That is the only place on the planet. You know, everywhere else I'm an outsider, even in America where I was born and where I was raised, I'm an outsider. I mean, you talk about living in different parts of the city, walking together hand in hand, the looks that you would get from black men, right? Like that, like that's eye opening. And I, and I really, truly appreciate you sharing that perspective. That was, that was, that was eye opening. I mean, let's talk about Ghana for a moment. Let's talk about Ghana for a moment. And I, the, 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 the part that I love, and I want to talk how other people from all over the world could apply this concept when they, when they're, when they're bi-cultural, I guess, if you live in the States, if you're from another country, like the, the concept of being on the continent. Hmm. How could that apply to, to folks from all around the world who are living elsewhere? Um, and in what way do you mean, like being on the continent? Right. Like how could people better keep close to their cultural roots? 
Oh. And, and, and not to move far away from them and, and yeah. keep it close to home. I mean, you know what? That's a really tough thing because I think you have to be, one, curious enough about that culture to want to explore it. You know, it's not easy to stay close because the thing is that like with anything, with anything, it's like whether it's food or language or fashion or music, that's what makes a culture. You know, we say culture and we make it sound like this one ball that you just throw at somebody and it's not it. You know, it's like, look, my daughter right now, right? She is 14 years old. She does not speak any native language of Ghana, right? Because I didn't teach it to her. It's like uh, my kids with Russian. They don't, they don't know anything. Yeah. Right. It's like, I wish I had. And now she's like taking some classes and it's painful. You know, it's hard for her because she's older and it's not natural to her. Right. Um, but her favorite foods are Ghanaian. The music that she listens to is Afrobeats primarily, right? The um, and so there are parts of culture that she identifies with that are close to her that she loves. And therefore, I feel like, okay, you know, that's a way for her to bond with culture. So I think for most people, it's like, look, if you are trying to better identify or stay close to a culture, whether that's on the continent or some other continent, it is, and believe me, I do call Africa the continent because it is where men mankind originated um i agree with that it is important that uh you know you don't get lost in the bigness of culture it's like you've got to break it down to like what are the parts of culture that are important to you you know it could just be food it could be human music it could be language it could be fashion it could be politics it could be so many things you know that make up culture and, and I appreciate you sharing that because it was tough for me to formulate even this interview because you've you've done such a, a, a large, robust press tour and people are asking you like a lot of the same questions. So I'm like, shit, let me let me go in a little bit, a little bit different direction here. I'm going to read a quick passage of the part that resonated the most to me, page 220. Have you gotten to the point where you memorize the page numbers of the book here? No, no, no. All right. All right. Um, this is uh, um, at the end, um, I haven't quote, I haven't used the phrase light at the end of the tunnel since that day. I realized that when you're in darkness instead of waiting for a ray of sun to appear you sometimes have to find the light within you have to conjure the match spark the flint and ignite it yourself i learned that it was up to me to create the dawn yeah let's unpack that one there for a moment yeah a little bit of context for folks out there what are you referring to and let's let's get into that one that was powerful that one i mean i made a point i put a post-it on it (laughs) no i appreciate that you know I think there's so many statements that people make, so many of these phrases that, you know, we are so used to saying that we throw them out and we think it's going to be comfort or encouragement to somebody. And people say, you know, what well, there's light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm like, well, have you ever been in the darkness? Like, let's say the light power goes out at your house. OK. And it's nighttime. And or or actually, let's use a different example. It's it, it is nighttime. You're waking up to go to the bathroom. OK. And you see the little nightlight that you have at the end of the hallway. And let's pretend you have some small kids at home. So there's all kind of dangerous little Legos and other obstacles that could be (laughs) on the floor. And you have to get from here to the bathroom, okay? The likelihood that you step on something you can't see because the light is all the way down there is high, okay? Now let's pretend you're one of these people who always has their phone in their hand. So you get up and the first thing you do is reach for your phone and therefore you can turn on the little flashlight and look at, look down as you're walking to the bathroom. The likelihood that you stub your toe on something that you did not mean to is less. That is what I'm talking about. So for me, what I have learned is that even in my lowest, even at my darkest, 
to try and reach for something out there that is going to make me feel better, that is going to help me to get to that light is dangerous because any number of things along the way could throw me off, could stub my toe, could hurt me some more. However, if I create the light, if I create the light, the likelihood that I'm able to shine it into places where I feel there's danger and see if there's actual danger and then skip by it or see that there's danger and jump over it or see that there's no danger and keep going is a much more successful road. Amen. Because guess what? That light over there could also burn out. It could also go out. And then what you do? Then you're stuck in darkness. That shit hits home. And and you you keep that light on. And the way you kept your light on through this entire journey through this book is insanely, insanely admirable. And I'm going to urge, I'm going to switch to chapter two of this show in a second here, but I want everyone, uh, the, the Steve Bartlett one was great. The one with Lisa Bill, was fantastic. Those are two that I push everyone to. You get the whole story there. Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. I will ask the same question that all of them ask the same. What does it mean to live the urgent life? Yeah. Because well, I want that too. I want my sound clip with that, right? That's fair. Like, come on, right? Like, come on. Well, it's controversial. You know, I feel like now it's a controversial thing to say because um, – I think it is a dangerous thing to live your life. People think that we should do that, and but they confuse it because they think it should be a sacrificial one. That somehow you are more noble if you are living for other people, if you're putting other people ahead of yourself. You're a martyr? Somehow, yeah, somehow you're better. You know, even the idea of martyrdom, I don't agree with. You know, because I'm just like, who are you to die on my behalf or to... Try to make yourself seem more saintly than me because you're taking on something that I should be doing in my life. I just don't agree with it. I think that in our own lives, the urgency comes up because you are living your purpose. You're living the reason why you're here. Why are you here? What is your life about? What is the meaning of it all? If you are not living for that, then you're not living urgently. And if you were living for somebody else's destiny, somebody else's purpose, somebody else's happiness, then I'm sorry, you're not living life. You aren't. And so if you feel like that is offensive to you, then you should consider how you are living and why you're living that way. I love it. And and this was I'm going to save this for the end. But the but the Diane Ackerman quote at the start of the book, quote, I don't want to get to the end of my life and find out that I've just lived the length of it. It's the width of it. Right. Like like, fuck. Yeah. Like like and and after I finished the book that resonated so deeply, but it's like it just resonated. And you talk about it on the Steve Bartlett show. Like he's like he's like you being selfish, selfish, this whole concept. You know what? Fuck it. I, I am being selfish. I want to live yeah. the best life for me. I want to give, if I'm living my best life, everyone around me is going to be busy, living their best life because I'm feeling great. I'm putting everyone That's around right. me feeling good. I want my That's kids, my family, my friends. So fuck it. You know what? I am going to live the best life. I am going to look out for number one and make sure everyone around me is empowered to yeah. do the same. But here's the thing, Adam. Look, let's really talk about it, which is yeah. that we've all been victims, okay? You can probably point to somebody in your life You've been a victim of them being unhappy and pointing that trauma at you. We have all been victim to that. 
whether it is a boss, it is your mama, it is your pastor, it is your neighbor, it is your Your best friend, some your ex. You have been in the pathway of somebody's unhappiness being pointed at you. That is what I'm talking about when I say you must be selfish in your life. Because that person, what I wanted for them, for that person who did that to me, what I wanted for them was for them to choose themselves in their life, for them to be happy in their life. And that way they would treat me better. And so when I say be selfish in your life, that is what I'm talking about. Do not put your trauma on somebody else because you aren't unhappy in your life. So put yourself first and therefore save the rest of us from your bullshit. (laughs) Amen. Now, with that, I am going to move on to the career part. The career part, because that's what the show is about. And if I have someone of your caliber and experience on the show, we're going to spend some time on it. Yes. Both. Let's do a little role play here. Okay. Okay. You're the hiring manager, right? Yes. You're you're C-suite sitting there. A resume (laughs) without a name on it comes across your plate. And it's someone with your career trajectory. And let's call Mm -hmm. it what it is. Some of your stints have not been that long. Would you consider yourself a job hopper? Um. Objectively, yes. subjectively, like yes. blind, yes. no bias. Of course. And how would you evaluate and what questions would you ask that candidate knowing your experience and why yeah. the reasons that you went from yeah. job to job in a positive, opportunistic way? There's so only you, one question to ask. Whether somebody's been in a job for six months or they've been in a job for 10 years, what did you do there? How did you create impact? That's the only question to ask. Okay. So, and if but, they're able to create impact in six months, I think that's pretty damn good. If they took 10 years and did one thing, I don't want you. But let's but let's be let's be realistic. You have been in some of the biggest freaking corporate conglomerate behemoth process paralysis in the world. You and I both know that some of these companies, you can't get shit done in less than a year. Your first few months in executive, you're listening, right? Like, no, that's not true. I disagree with that completely. No. Okay. The thing is that like it depends on the job. It depends on the role that you come to play. And by the way, let's also put some responsibility on me or you as the employee. Right. I don't come into a job just willy nilly like, oh, let me thank you for this great opportunity. Let me see what I can do. No, that's how you fail. Come you know, right you got to come in with a point of view. You got to come in with a reason why you're there. I'm not there for a title. I'm there to get a job done. And so therefore, it's like, look, if I came, I came into Uber knowing that as the chief brand officer, I needed to switch around the reputation of the company. They were going through shit at the time. They had some bad PR coming their way. A whole lot of bad PR. Okay. It had been the golden child and it was dying quickly, hemorrhaging, in fact. And so my job as the chief brand officer was to change around the reputation of the, of the brand externally and also encourage the excitement of the employees internally. And so that means I come in and I have to know exactly what to do. I have to make extreme measures quickly. I don't have six months. The company wouldn't be around in six months. And so that's why I disagree with that statement. It's like, I'm not sitting around on my hands listening for a year. The company would no longer exist if I did that. Exactly. And for any aspiring podcasters out there, this technique is called poking the bear. This is a technique where you ask a purposely controversial question to get a response like that, everybody. So let's talk about some lessons here. And I want to go back to you. You do a lot of time talking about that experience with Spike Lee and saying that you had that opportunity. Another quote, page 103. I tab that one over here. I realize now that I always had a keen sense of what I was good at in areas I fell short. And being honest about my shortcomings was important as knowing my talents. I didn't waste energy pretending, trying to pretend or bluff. 
right? Like mm-hmm. self-awareness, right? And this goes back to, I want to get into now your decision-making process when you went from company to company, right? I'd love mm-hmm. if you could share a little bit of insight behind the scenes of those decisions and being yeah. insanely positively opportunistic in the best possible yeah. way. Because that's yeah. what I took from it. That's my lesson yeah. learned. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I think this is a combination of what we're talking about with like living life urgently, knowing yourself and also having purpose. You know, understanding that living life urgently means that I don't want to waste time. I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste your time. You know, knowing myself, meaning that I understand what I'm good at and what I'm not good at. So look, there are, as you can imagine, there are lots of jobs that are offered to me, actually. You know, there's lots, but I don't take them because I know that like either one, I'm not going to be good at the job. You know, the, the issue or the problem they want me to solve is not something I feel like I have talent in. So I'm not doing things just for the shits and giggles of it, you know, or three, it doesn't match my purpose and my interest, you know, because there's lots of big, amazing companies that exist that I could probably go work at. But, eh, you know, they don't really razzle dazzle me. And so I would never go there. And so part of the understanding of self and moving and changing and taking on new roles is a combination of those three things. Is it urgent for you? Is it, are you going to waste their time and your time by being in the job? Two, are you actually good at the job you're being asked to do? And that is where you have to have some real self-awareness. It's like, are you actually good at this thing? Can I do this shit? Can I do it? Can I actually do it? Am I bluffing? Am I, no. Correct. And three, does it fit your purpose and your interest? If none of those things are true, then why the hell are you in the job? Extreme self-awareness. What advice do you give younger folks out there that are trying to find their purpose? What are some of those kind of workshoppy questions in their head? Because it's hard when you're younger to find your purpose. There's very few people that have that kind of defined early on. Well, the thing is that like, look, I think purpose is a very lofty word to also that you can substitute for intuition or why and destiny. Yeah, because the thing is that, look, your purpose changes over time. You don't just have one. You know, things change in your life and it's okay for your purpose to change. And so sometimes I think we say purpose and people get caught up because they think, oh my God, I got to have this one thing for the rest of my life. And if I get it wrong, you know, it's like terrible. And that's why they're like, oh, I'm in search of my purpose. No, 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 no. You have purpose right now. You might be one year out of college and you have purpose right this very minute that will not be the same in 15 years. You know, so don't go waiting and looking for your purpose. It's like, what are you, what is the thing that you want to do right now? This very moment in time. You know, it's like the things that make you excited, the things that make you happy, the reasons why you want to get out of bed. Why do you want to be here in the world? You know, if that's you know what that thing is. And so don't go out there looking for it like it's some Jesus that you're going to go find somewhere. It's like you already have it. All you got to do is pay attention to it. And look, it is going to change in 15 years. So don't be so scared of that in the future that you think that, like, if you make a mistake now, somehow it's going to affect you for the next, you know, two decades of your career. I'm kind of like laughing a little bit because as a recruiter by trade, I talk to a lot of young candidates and we're talking about different careers and different opportunities. And they're like, it doesn't align with my purpose. And they're, some of their purposes are so lofty, right? They're so lofty. I'm like, right. you know, guess what? You get, right, right now you need a job. You want to find a good company with a good purpose that's not doing evil, that's going to help build that skill set and help you skill stack um, moving into the future. And that's kind of the other cool part about your career. There's so much skill stacking going on there. Would I got to ask you this? What would you learn by by working with uh, with Dre and Jimmy? Oh my goodness! Le- I mean, oh I, I was like, I mean, those two are fucking legends, legends at the highest yeah. level. So here's the thing: is that um, you know, talk about people who understand what they're good at and what they're not good at. 
You know, it's like, yes, they're legends, but they're legends at a very specific thing. And they don't step out their lane. They really don't. So even in building a music streaming company, they know how to choose music. Jimmy is notoriously has a golden ear, right? Beautiful. He can spot a hit song freaking two seconds into the music. It's quite impressive, actually. And Dre has the same magic. Um, But they're not tech wizards. And so even in selling the company to Apple, you know, could they have made more money if they had kept all of the, the entire company to themselves? Because Beats Music is actually what Apple bought, right? That's what they wanted. And that's what was created into Apple Music, mm-hmm. right? Um, they probably could have made more money keeping the company to themselves, but that's not what they were good at. And so why not then partner with somebody who actually has real depth in tech and then add your knowledge to that, you know? And so then at the end of the day, when it comes down to the competition in the streaming music space, it was simply about figuring out how to use their expertise in picking artists, picking songs that would enhance, you know, the service and treating artists like the people that they are, you know, versus just as the sort of ticker. Commodity, commodity. Yeah, yeah. And then that's why we started winning. You know, and even in their hire of me. Right. Um, Because that, you know, the day that I met Jimmy and Dre, that was the conversation, you know, which was just like, hey, look, we need a big time marketer. And we need somebody who has marketed music to the masses. And at that point, I was coming from PepsiCo, where I had done the Super Bowl halftime show and worked with a lot of top of the top. Yeah. But at the same time, it was like I was using artists to sell a product. And so that's what they needed to do. Does both get starstruck? Have, who, who's who's floored? Like, I, I got to assume you met the queen. I've assumed you met like with like, were you starstruck then? And we know we know we know who knows who. <laughs> I get starstruck. Um, you know that's a really tough question. I I do get starstruck. I I'm I'm always impressed by people's ability. You know, and but the thing is that I don't think it's starstruck necessarily just by celebrities. You know, I'm starstruck by people who are just so good at the thing that they do. I just find that to be magical, you know? So it's like, I felt that way when I met Travis Kalanick, for instance. Look, I was like, he's the founder of Uber. And look, at the time I met him, he was in hot shit, you know, because it was like, there was so much going on. He was being um, maligned for everything. And I was just so struck by the fact that like, he had an idea which became this, you know, which changed the culture and changed history, you know? Um, But I have also been starstruck by Beyonce. You know, by being like, wow, this woman is incredible at her craft. She's a perfectionist in it. What did you say to her the first time you met her? Well, we were very young at the time. I mean, there wasn't really much to say. It was still Destiny Child's days. Yeah, yeah. She was just coming out of Destiny's Child. She was just coming out for solo. Mm -hmm. Um, But by the way, at that time, everyone, no one thought she was going to win. Like everybody thought she was like not yeah. the champion. I mean, there was an article like you, you can search it now. Her versus Ashanti, and they everybody said Ashanti was going to be the one to win. Now, no shade to Ashanti at all, but you know it's like history's, I guess, made the point. That is so interesting, and I love how you talk about hip hop in the book too. I mean, I'm I'm an East Coast guy, right? But yeah. but 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 Tupac, and tell us what Tupac mean means to you now. Oh, now. Um, now, because well, you talk about a lot in the book, by the lyrically, way, so, and you break down the lyrics. 
Speaking of being starstruck, I would be starstruck by Tupac now, right? I, I would have been starstruck by him then, but now as an older person, I'd be even more starstruck because of what he was able to accomplish in such a short amount of time on the planet. Right, you know? it's such a small body of it's such oh a, a pro- prolific in a small period of time. Prolific amount of work in a short amount of time, you know. And I think Tupac was certainly, you know, if you've seen the doc about him and his mom, dear mama, um, it's really quite remarkable because you think about all the messages that he was trying to share while being an imperfect human. You know, we like raise up all of our idols or like you know political figures or music artists as if they can, as if they're not human, as if they don't make mistakes, as if they don't get themselves in trouble. And the truth of the matter is that everybody does, you know? So that's why I'm so impressed by Tupac is that he was able to be a prophet. And I don't use that term lightly. He was a prophet and also an activist and also a misogynist and also a incredible talent and also somebody's son. (laughs) You know what I mean? And somebody's boyfriend and somebody's side piece. You know what I mean? He didn't write, um, you know, his diss records because he was like, you know, a nice guy. He wrote I mean, because I, he, was a, he was a vengeful guy. I mean, I mean, talk, my, my dude's DMX. I mean, if you want to go to that same extreme, man, like he's my like he's my inner voice. He's my spirit animal. When I need to get oh, yeah. pumped up for me, it's DMX. That yeah. gets me like that gets me that gets me that gets me in the zone. Um, any new music exciting you these days? Any oh, genre. Yeah. What's exciting? What are you feeling these days? What's in the headphones? Ah, so much. I well, I love a lot of Afro beats. I love Stormzy. I love R and B. So I love SZA. I love Coco Jones. Love SZA. I love some pop music. So you know, I, I I'm a Swifty. I love Taylor Swift. Um, I love Chris Brown. Even though he's again talk about flawed humans. Just the music. Let's focus on the music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know, <laughs> but I'm saying flawed humans. You know, um, I love Joel James. I love Sweetie, you know, I love, gosh, let's see, what are some rappers? I mean, I love Drake. Everybody loves Drake. Why not? Drake is like pop rap. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's not hard to dislike. I love the baby. I like Travis Scott. You know, there's like lots of people. All right. So before, before, <laughs> before, I, before I bring it home, Bo's, um, career front, what's yeah. next? What are you up to? What are you working on? Give us some alpha. Um, well, right now I am working on like my, you know, what I feel is my, my third act. So I've, I've done the CMO thing. You know, I feel pretty successful at it. I think, I think it did all right. Yeah. I mean, once you're in I the Hall of Fame, right? It's like, it's just like is there no Hall of Fame, a Hall of Fame. You're in the Hall of Fame. You're good. <laughs> exactly. You got the rings. You're the Tom Brady. I think, I think I got that. Yeah. Yeah. And then <laughs> you know, I fulfilled my dream of being an author, told my story. You know, don't I don't know if I have another book in me, to be honest. We'll see if another one comes, another one comes. If it doesn't, took my question, but that's cool. I'm totally totally okay with that. Um, And so, yeah, so I'm in my third act. And, you know, I talk about this a lot. Right. Which is that I do believe in intuition. I believe in listening to your spirit. And that is what I'm doing right now. You know, I feel very aligned. I feel so comfortable with who I am and what is meant for me that I am comfortable in sort of like the development there's just too many situations that happen where I'm just like, oh my God, like how did those boxes come together in this way for my benefit? And I applaud you for being a role model to all the young ladies out there. I was, my, my, my daughter Nina is 11. I was sitting through your Instagram with her. She's like, she is ripped. I'm like, Bose is out there showing, working your ass off. 
yeah. being mindful, so mindful of, of your, your physical presence and how you appear in the world and the role model you are to your daughter. So let me ask you this. For any single slash only parents out there mm-hmm. who are doing this on their own, right? Yeah. Especially daughters. What advice would you give them to raise strong, confident young ladies and young women? Well, look, actually, I, I give this advice to all parents, which is that, you know, we are here as vessels for the children. You know, we're not here to tell them what to do. And so I find that a lot of times, you know, it's like you're trying to correct the mistakes of your life and not have your kids make the same mistakes. And I'm like, but why? Why do they have to do that? You know, it's like, look, they're living life to figure out what their own journey is. And yes, we don't want them to like go rolling off a cliff when we can see that like the end of the road is coming. Um, But at the end of the day, it's like, look, sometimes they got to swerve a little bit, you know, and come to that. Yeah. And so what I try to do with my daughter is to be the simply the vessel that brought her here and to help guide her, but never to try and tell her how to live the life or how to be. We're not the same person. We don't have the same personality. And so even though she's my kid and even though she's growing up in my house, uh, it is not my duty to shape her into what I think she should be. I'm simply here to try and guide her into who she is. Love that. And when they all read the book for the first time, what was that? As much as you're open to sharing. She hasn't read the book. No, she's not read the book. I asked her, I asked her not to read the book. Um, and I asked her that because I don't think she is ready for the book. Uh, it's a very adult book. And we, you know, I'm talking about very, very deep. Intimate. Um, and I'm talking about her father in ways that I don't know that she's ready to hear. And so I have not denied her the opportunity to read it if she wants like, you know, I did that thing where I, I gave her the book. I mean, I dedicated the book to her. And so I told her that it is hers if she would like to read it, but I prefer that she wait. And so she has decided to wait, at least for now. We'll see. Maybe next week she changes her mind. Whose life I cherish beyond my own. There it is right there. You're an incredible role model. I'm going to bring it home here with questions. This is my master class. And literally, this is a legit master class. This is a legit master class here. Three questions. Bring it home. Yes. Bose, what is the single greatest piece of advice that you received that you take action on daily? And you can't say you can't say live the urgent life. You got to go something different on this one. That was a layup. Hmm. <laughs> Did I take a mantra, something you wake up in the morning, something you're like, all right, let's get this day started. This is my pump song this is going to get me moving in the oh, right direction. It's um, it's actually a it's a Bible verse. And I, I have it printed in my house um, everywhere where it's like, be still and know that I am God. And it is the, a mantra, a Bible verse, a way of being that I appreciate, that I love, because it reminds me to be still in my intuition. You know, so you can replace God with any of the beings that you believe in. Be and I think this holds true. You know, that it's like, look, you trying to manipulate situations in your life and turning yourself around like the Tasmanian devil is not going to get you very far. You know, it's like if you listen to your intuition, if you are still in it, then you can take the steps forward in order to actually get to your destiny. You can be more purposeful in it. You can be more intentional in it. You can be happier in it. You can be that much more excited. 
And so for me, the idea of stillness is not necessarily about standing still and being stagnant. It is really understanding my own intuition and what is meant for me that will allow me to eventually get to the greatness that I know is meant for my life. I love it. And you talk a lot about in the book and, and speaking to God and praying and, and mm-hmm. whatever you do in your own way. And, and Bose, last but not least, you look back on your life and you look at those low points. You have been at the lowest of low, losing your college boyfriend, your husband, your first child, your husband, the lowest mm-hmm. points when you had to dig down deep at the bottom of that well and harness that inner tenacity and pull yourself up. And now you sit here, gratitude, respect for what you've created, this life, mm-hmm. this family, the friends around you. Mm-hmm. What is your compass? What is your beacon? Bozma mm-hmm. St. John, what is your North Star in life? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think that's just it. I don't know that I have a North Star to be honest, you know, I feel like um, an adventurer who's on the open sea, who is being driven by wherever the winds are blowing, knowing that if I happen upon an island, I won't try to conquer it. I'll just become one of the natives. <laughs> no Christopher Columbus over here, you know. I'm just here to party. Um, but I, uh, I, I, I believe in being able to, like, live a life that allows me to be an explorer of it. You know, sometimes if you have a North Star, you'll miss the islands to the left because you're over here just trying to get to this mainland. And who knows what's over there? You know, if you only let the winds blow you and then by the time you land there, be grateful, yes, for the journey to get there. But I don't have a North Star because I want want to find the whole world. I want to really explore my entire life. And that is the most interesting response in almost 300 episodes that I ever received. And I'm glad that it came from you. Bozeman St. John, hang with me for one moment here. I want to thank you so much for joining me on this little show I call The Podcast. I deeply, deeply, deeply appreciate you. Everyone out there, please check out The Urgent Life, found on Amazon, wherever best books are sold. You can follow Bose on all of our social media channels. We will link it up. Bose, hang with me one second here. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate you. Thank you for letting me come on. <laughs> oh my God. This is like, now I got now I got nine more folks to go on my wish list. I'll tell you that <laughs> offline. Um, everyone out there, if this show meant something to you, if it resonated, sharing means caring, leave a review rating. It goes a long way. You know how to find out more at the podcast.com, not the bozcast.com. You know the social <laughs> media channels. Remember, look out for one another, take care of each other, be good to yourself, be better to others, and catch us next week for another good episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search the podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com. <laughs>